welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Tajania Henderson, Professor of Law at Rutgers Law School and Dean of the Rutgers Graduate School Newark. We will discuss her article, I Shall Talk to My Own People, The Intersectional Life and Times of Ludi A. Lytle, which was published in the Iowa Law Review. So welcome to the show, Tajania. Thank you, Brian. I'm so excited to be here. Me too. It's such a huge pleasure to have one of my law school and law review classmates on the program. You're not the first, but I'm sure you'll be one of the best. You've set the bar really high, and I'm so annoyed with myself that I'm not the first. You know how competitive I can be. <laughs> indeed, 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 indeed. Well, so, so Tajania, I, I really loved this paper. Oh, I mean, I thought you. it was a great read and, you know, really kind of beautifully written. Um, for listeners who not may not be familiar with Ludi Lytle, who, as you point out in the paper, has not gotten the recognition she deserved, I wonder if you could just kind of in a nutshell talk a little bit about who she was, why she was important, and how you became interested in her. Absolutely. So I can sort of start at the at the top. Ludi Ann Lytle graduated from law school in 1897. And within a year, was hired as an instructor at her alma mater, at which point she became the first woman to teach at an accredited law school anywhere in the country. And if we believe what the Chicago Tribune wrote about her in 1898, she was the first woman to teach at a law school anywhere in the world. What's interesting about Ludi and what I think is sort of worthy of attention is she accomplished this in the 1890s when the numbers of women going to law school were very low. Some schools refused to admit women, as most people, as many people who are listening will know. Also that Ludi Lytle was a woman of African descent. Both of her parents, we believe, had been enslaved in Tennessee before her birth. And so this is a woman who is descended from black people in Tennessee. I think she has her one of her one or both of her parents has a sort of multiracial um, background. This is a woman whose family is not particularly well to do in Tennessee and they become part of this movement of formerly enslaved people out of places like Tennessee into what is then called the West. And it includes Kansas. So she comes to Kansas. She grows up in Kansas, sort of has her childhood in Kansas and is part of she, along with her parents and her siblings, they're part of this early generation of Southern migrants to Kansas who established towns, who established neighborhoods in existing towns, and who themselves grow to become some of the sort of most prosperous folks in the state, her father is recorded as being among the most prosperous men of African descent in the entire state of Kansas. Wow. Well, so maybe you could talk a little bit about the social context in which she was born and grew up, because it sounds like central Tennessee was pretty harrowing at that point in time. Yeah, I would say yes. <laughs> so central Tennessee at the time, sort of in the years before her birth, Ludie Lytle is born in the 1870s. When she is born, it's after Reconstruction is over. 
So she's born at a time when, or I think she's born right before the end of Reconstruction. So she's born at a time when racial conflicts are high. In a place like Tennessee, we have evidence that people are being violently excluded from property holding. People are being turned out of their homes. These are Black people in Tennessee. People are having their schools and churches burned. We know from one of the colored conventions that happens in Tennessee that there is uh, remarks made at that colored convention about people being, excuse me, people being skinned alive in Tennessee. And so all of this is happening in this part of Tennessee that is called Middle Tennessee. And Middle Tennessee includes the town of Murfreesboro where Ludie Lytle was born. So her parents are living in this area. Her parents are no doubt aware of what is happening probably to people that they may in fact know and perhaps even happening to people in their own extended families. And it's a scary time. Probably beginning as early as 1866, Tennessee specifically sort of emerges as a place of some real dire concern for the future of emancipation, for the future of what will then become known as Reconstruction. In 1866, you have these Memphis riots, and the Memphis riots are so are um, involve such atrocity that they become uh, sort of the central feature of congressional testimony and congressional investigations. And some of the testimony from that 1866 Memphis riot will really, I think, uh, make your sort of hair stand on end. There are uh, people are are murdered for no reason. People there are numerous women are raped. There are uh, children who are harmed. Multiple homes are burned. So you have just indiscriminate violence and bloodshed in the streets of Memphis. And it really, I think, causes some to wonder whether or not emancipation and freedom will mean anything material for formerly enslaved folks living in Tennessee and the rest of the American South. And so Ludi's parents are alive during this time. And so they themselves are sort of watching these things unfold. Of course, Murfreesboro is not Memphis, but the, the news of what's happening in Memphis becomes a matter of national concern. Again, congressional investigations back when, when Congress um, was, was not hesitant to do such investigations of this type. And so I think that in addition to being aware of what's happening around them and having concern for the future of themselves and the future of their children, you have these folks out of Tennessee who decide, beginning in the late 18, mid to late 1870s, who decide we can find better opportunities, we can find better schools, we can find better uh, security, really physical, bodily security outside of our homeland. And these people pack their families up and they move to Kansas, knowing very little about what will meet them in Kansas, having nothing except what they can carry. And the Lytle family is part of this this exodus. And I call it an exodus because that's sort of what the people who did it called it. The, 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 the migrants called themselves ex- exodusters. And also because that's the title of Nell Painter's 
historian Nell Painter's book about the subject. So Nell Painter was one of the first historians to really track the, this movement of folks from Tennessee and uh, northern Georgia, sort of from that, that whole little area of the central south, if you will, those folks moving out of their homeland away from these rural areas where violence and bloodshed and property divestment and, you know, arson were, were really prominent, prevalent. They moved to the West. Kansas is one of their uh, preferred destinations. They think of it as a promised land. And this is sort of, you know, one of those migrations that will come to define settlement patterns among African-Americans for the next 50 or so years. So I was wondering when reading your paper, was there something specific about Kansas in at that point in time that made it especially attractive for African-American migrants from that region of the country? I think one of the things that made Kansas attractive is uh, the availability availability of land. So the idea that folks could come to Kansas could with and and I think the land was fairly cheap. So although I don't I don't I couldn't recite for you sort of how much land costs in Kansas, but <laughs> I think people um, the people came to think of Kansas as a place where land acquisition was not as fraught with racial terror as land acquisition was in some of these areas in the South. So, you know, there has been quite a bit of research over that has happened over the past, I would say, decade or so, maybe even over the past two decades, I think, since I started graduate school back in the 90s, with folks really trying to quantify how much Black land ownership was um, decimated by racial violence in the years during Reconstruction and the decades after. And I think that sort of that history, sort of knowing how much land was lost, right? The Forsyth County story in Georgia, just people being turned out of towns entirely. What does that look like? How many acres are we talking about? That has been an ongoing research project for some folks. And I, I really think that it's it's important to keep in mind that Sort of all of that is happening in the background. So with Kansas, you have, even though, I mean, as an aside, Kansas has its own bloody history, right? Bloody Kansas Indeed. is a thing, yeah. right? So, so John Brown is in Kansas before he is at Harper's Ferry. I think that there is, there is a communication network, maybe multiple communication networks, if I'm, if I'm sort of being realistic, where people are sending word back to places like Middle Tennessee and saying, come here, there's opportunity here. And we, we'll, we will see this, this, the work of communication networks of this type. We will see the power of those types of communication networks in the 1920s and the 1930s as people begin to leave the South by the millions and resettle in places like Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit, Often they were doing it on the word of family and trusted friends, and sometimes they were doing it on the basis of, you know, the black press in those places. So the Chicago Defender regularly would include in its um, in its print pages, "Come to Chicago. There is opportunity here," and that becomes, you know, um, it becomes a beacon in a way for folks who are living under what we know to be 
real terror. People who are living, recognizing that at any moment, their their homes, their bodies, their children's bodies can be ravaged and there will be no remedy for them. There will be no day in court for them. There will be no opportunity to stake a claim to what we think of as freedom and integrity, bodily integrity in, in, in these regions. And so folks are really thinking it is, it is not sustainable for our family to stay here if we want something better, if we want something more. And they are taking a huge risk. You know, these families are moving again, like with all they have. And we will see this in other parts of, of American history where, you know, the, the folks who wind up in Oklahoma, people just pack up what they can and, and take to take to the road, if you will. And it has got to be a terrifying choice to decide whatever is happening in Kansas, even though I don't know much about Kansas, I may know two people there or no people there. It's got to be better than what's happening here. Mm. Well, so Lytle spent a good part of her youth in Kansas and kind of her young adulthood as well. I wonder if, if you could talk a little bit about what she was doing there and what inspired her to make the decision to go to law school. And in particular, sort of why did she return to Tennessee to go to law school? That's a good question. So sure, as a child, she is attending Topeka Public Schools during this, I think, brief window of time in the 1880s and early 1890s when the Topeka Public Schools are integrated schools. She is performing so well in those schools that she makes the local paper. So there, there, I was able to identify an article written about her when I think she's either nine or 10 that talks about how her grades are so high and she's performing so well in school and everybody is so proud of little Ludie Lytle. Um, I think that in the the time when she's attending public schools, her siblings are also attending those schools, and her father is establishing himself as an entrepreneur. So Ludie's father, John Lytle, had been an entrepreneur, a small-scale entrepreneur in Tennessee. He is a huckster, and a huckster just refers to someone who travels around with, you know, a horse and buggy and delivers dry goods and fruits and vegetables and sort of household needs to people who may not have access to other markets. He's doing this during Ludie's youth and is also working as a barber occasionally. When the family moves to Kansas, they're in Topeka. He establishes a barber shop and sort of fairly quickly becomes a a political figure. So he aligns himself with a political, uh, with populist political movement in, there in Topeka and is able to use his position to, I think, improve his entrepreneurial ventures and also to set himself and his children up for real careers. I mean, these are none of the Lytle children go into, into, um, they all go into professional fields. So one of the Lytle children becomes a police officer. Ludie becomes a, a law professor and a lawyer. And then there's a third brother who may be 
a little bit of a problem. <laughs> so we don't really know what he did. I know he gets in trouble at some point with the law and then it goes away fairly quickly, probably because of how connected the family is. So as a young person, Ludi is going to school. She also probably because of her father's connections there in town. Again, he came to the to Topeka as an entrepreneur and sort of built up his own business, multiple ventures there in this in the city, and probably is also sort of serving as a bit of a resource for other migrants who are coming both from middle either from Middle Tennessee or from other places throughout the South. He is seen as a man of uh, great respect and uh, uh, prominence in the area. And I think that this is something that his children can then uh, leverage when the time comes. And so Ludi, I think at either 15 or 16, becomes a editor and compositor at one of the local newspapers. So at the time... The, there is a sort of growing black press in the 1880s. This is sort of across the country. One of these papers is called the Kansas Black Man. And Ludi becomes an employee at the Kansas Black Man where she is editing pieces, she is writing pieces, and she's still a teenager while this is happening. And so there's she has this history, which goes on for a few years before she leaves town. She also, I think at either 18 or 19, gets a job again due to her father's prominence, a job as an engrossing clerk at the state legislature. So there's this line in the article that I'm super proud of that I'm going to repeat here for your listeners, <laughs> that Ludi Lytle was working for the Kansas State Legislature before she could vote for the Kansas State Legislature, because it won't be until for another almost 35 years or so before uh, she'll have the right to vote. And I think that it's really sort of, a, you know, and what I can see from the records is that there are several women, presumably younger women, who are employed in this way. They're probably single women, not yet married. And there's this is, a, I think, one of the earlier moments where we see sort of um, employment discrimination, if we can call it that, although I don't think anyone would have called it that at the time, but we see these barriers to jobs, these barriers to legitimate work for certain types of women because of their status. So Ludi is able to work for the state legislature probably because she's not married and because she doesn't have children. Because once those things are sort of part of her life, more and more opportunities are shut out for her. In terms of the question of why she returns to Kansas, I mm. have not been able to identify any of her own words about this issue. I think she returns to can to sorry, excuse me to Tennessee because there's still family in Tennessee, possibly because there's this extended family, both black and white in middle Tennessee. And maybe that's why she returns. The other thing is she may return because in the 1890s, and Ludi starts law school in 1895, I think there are very few places where a woman who wants to be a lawyer can go to law school. Now, of course she doesn't have to go to law school, but if she wants to go to law school in order to pursue a legal career, there are only a few places where she can go. And one of those places is the school she went to, which is Central Tennessee College in, in Nashville. 
which had a law department. Um, another place would have been Howard University's law school there in Washington, D.C. And it could very well be that considering the options among the sort of limited the, the, the very, I think, short list of schools where she could even be admitted, it made the most sense for her to return where her family had connections and where she would be part of a community that was familiar to her and com- uh, familiar to her parents at the time. Mm, yeah. Well, so like, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more then about sort of the state of affairs or the kind of the opportunities or lack thereof for legal education and legal practice for women and African-American women specifically at that point in time? Like what kind of options did they have? And, you know, to what extent was it even possible for people to attend law school and become members of the bar and practice as lawyers? You know, I think that this is, there have been, we are still learning how hard it was for women of all backgrounds to enter this profession. So sort of we are still doing this work. What we know is the first Black woman to graduate from law school is Charlotte Ray, who graduates from Howard University's law school, I think in 1875. Charlotte Ray will attempt to establish a law practice there in Washington, D.C. She will be unable to find clients. She will be unable to find established lawyers to go into practice with her. She will be unable to find mentors who can help her. And as a result, Charlotte Ray will leave the law, return to teaching, to being a school teacher, which she had done before law school, and will die basically in poverty as a result. By the time Ludie Lytle goes to law school 20-some years later, it is as if Charlotte Ray never went to law school because we don't see any reference to Charlotte Ray in any of the press accounts of Ludie's accomplishment as a law school graduate. So that suggests to me sort of thinking as a, a bit of a of a historical skeptic, if you will, not a skeptical historian, but historical skeptic. <laughs> that suggests to me that there were, there may very well have been women going to law school in very small numbers, but their ability to establish a practice was so limited that no one even knew they existed. Because when Ludie Lytle graduates, there are some press outlets who erroneously report that she's the first woman of African descent in the U.S. to graduate from law school. But we know that's not true. And we know that there were other women who entered Howard, for example, even there in Washington, between Charlotte Ray's graduation and between the time when Ludie graduates from Central. And yet again, those women don't appear in our press accounts. So it sort of suggests to me that Whatever social forces were at work, and I think that this is kind of where I thought that intersectionality was a good way to think. And, you know, it's a useful prism to examine the, the lives of these historical actors. These are women who are allowed to go to law school, right? So they get admitted to law school, suggest that they have all it takes to pursue this, this profession, to, to be you know, stellar attorneys of the bar. And yet, lo and behold, these women cannot establish practices. They cannot get clients. They cannot get people to sort of build partnerships with them. And it it makes me a little, 
it makes me a little a little sad to think about these women with all this ambition and talent who are just lost to the historical record in so many ways because of these social forces that thought that women were either not good enough, not smart enough, not outgoing enough, not qualified enough, you know, not fill in the blank enough to be lawyers. Mm. Well, so not only did uh, Lytle become a law professor, she also seems to have had a really interesting career kind of after graduation from law school in legal practice and also in politics as well. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of how she saw her role, at, both kind of as a lawyer, but also as an African-American woman. Sure. Luckily, we have a cache of interviews from Ludi where she talks about how she thinks of herself and how she thinks of law practice. And I have I was very fortunate to be able to, one, identify those interviews and to, to use them to actually make the case. What we don't have is a personal archive. But I tried to argue in my piece that we can use her interviews, her press interviews, and sort of press accounts of her activities as a way to sketch a personal archive for her, even with without her papers being in a repository somewhere. So that's a bit of a challenge, a research challenge. We can talk about that if you'd like. In terms of her practice, I'll just note that when it came time for Ludi to get admitted to the bar, she first attempted, she initially attempted to gain admission to the State Bar of Tennessee. At the time, state rules required that a lawyer seeking admission to the state bar in Tennessee appear before a local judge and that that local judge had to sort of do the honors, if you will, and enter that person into the lawyer roles. Ludi sought admission with one of the local judges there in, in Nashville, and she was rejected. Her request, her attempt was rebuffed on the grounds that this is the, the sort of the grounds coming from this judge that women were not eligible to be members of the bar because women were not eligible to be notaries repu- notaries public. So you have the judge sort of using this flawed logic, logic that since the state did not allow women to be notaries public, did not allow women to sort of certify oaths, did not allow women to do all of the wonderful things, certify signatures, the things that notaries do, that women also could not be lawyers, and therefore she was turned away. She subsequently traveled to Memphis, and with the help of some prominent lawyers there in Memphis, was able to gain admission to the bar. <clears throat> One of the lawyers that helped Ludi was Josiah Settle, who was, I think at one point, district attorney there in Shelby County. He was a man of mixed race who had been a father figure and a mentor to Ida B. Wells there in Memphis during the time when she was uh, working on her uh, her own newspaper. 
So when Ludi gets admitted and there in Memphis, she becomes the first woman admitted to the bar in Tennessee. She subsequently travels home to Topeka and gets admitted there and becomes the first woman admitted to the bar there in Kansas. So again, these are, you have this judge in Tennessee who is turning women away on some sort of spurious grounds. Who knows how many other women this judge had turned away, how many other qualified women this judge had turned away. But we know that Ludi was the first woman to actually gain admission to the state bar. This is in the late 1890s. And we, we have reason to think that There are women in both of these states who are either studying under lawyers in those states or have attended law school or sort of have taken law classes at some point and wanted to have a practice in these states. But for some reason, up until the 1890s, none of them had yet been admitted. Ludi's her, the establishment of her law practice actually has to wait, though, a few years because she tries, like Charlotte Ray and like I think, you know, innumerable other women whose names we may never know, she tried to establish a practice, tried to look for partners to go into practice with her first in Topeka, then later in Chicago, and she was unable to find anyone. So no one wanted to work for Ludi Lido, even though news of her accomplishments is now sort of reached across the pond. There's newspapers in London that are writing about Ludi graduating from law school and how impressive she is and how impressive her history is, having worked for the state legislature and having been an editor for a, a leading newspaper there in, in, in the state. And yet she can't find anyone to go into practice with her. We know that there is a bit of a gap in the historical record between her desire to establish a practice and her attempts to establish one in Chicago, which is sort of booming in the 1890s or the turn of the century. Chicago is where everyone wants to be. The the population there explodes. She She can't establish a practice and so she doesn't go. There's this gap between that moment when Ludi tries to establish a practice, a law practice in Chicago, and when we see her actually working as a lawyer in New York City in practice with her then husband, Alfred Cohen, who was an established lawyer in New York. So I think that there's maybe a seven or no, maybe a 10 year gap in Ludi's career story where we can't really see her in practice because no one's talking about it. I can't really find any evidence of her listed as counsel in any reported cases. And it makes me wonder whether she is working as a lawyer at all, or whether she's sort of doing more of this working as a school teacher, working where she can, maybe assisting her father in his, in his ventures, his entrepreneurial ventures, sort of what she's doing. I think this is a moment when women are seeking admission to state bars, although not we aren't talking about large numbers. The numbers are fairly small, but women see an opportunity here. And with the with the ratification of the 14th Amendment, I think that that may even renew sort of some women's ambition about what they can be and what what the constitution sort of sort of allows for them what the constitution protects for them and so they 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 begin to make these moves and and we don't see very many of them but we know that they are there and that they are acting and and seeking a practice ludi's 
establishment or joining of her husband's law practice actually mirrors what happens with several black women lawyers in the early 1900s and 19 in the 19-teens where these women are unable to establish solo practices. And then as an alternative, I think, I don't think that this is the first choice. I think that this is an alternative. As an alternative, then join the practices of their lawyer husbands and work together with their lawyer husbands to maintain a practice. We know that after Ludi's husband sort of passes, he passes away suddenly in 1911. And after his sudden death, she then resumes the practice and continues his cases. We have a reported case that I discuss in the, in the article in here in New York City, where Ludi is representing the family and the estate of a, a young man who is injured um, at work, sort of a workplace injury case. And she ultimately is successful in this case. And it was very exciting for me as a researcher to find her listed as counsel um, in this case, having been unable to find her listed as counsel anywhere else um, to see her here was really, was really great. I think that what these women experienced and, you know, the, the other women I would, I would name are um, Sadie Alexander, who is doing this in, in Philadelphia. There are women who are in Washington, D.C., who black women, lawyers in Washington, D.C., who go into practice with their husbands. What these women are trying to do is sort of use the degree that they have earned. These two women that I'm the women that I'm talking about are women who went to law school. They're trying to use the degree that they earn. They're trying to leverage their interests in the rule of law, their interests in in um, equality their interests in democracy. They're trying to do all of the things that we tried to do when we were entering law school, right? We all wanted to do good things. That's how we got into law school. We made these claims that we wanted to be great and we wanted to do good things. And these women wanted the exact same thing. And yet they were sort of turned away and turned back often enough that the the, the rational response for them the response that seemed to be the way to actually make their dreams come to fruition was to work with their husbands in these established practices. Mm-hmm. Well, so Tajani, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your research process and about kind of doing legal history uh, work in a sort of law school context, especially in relation to the kind of primary source work you you obviously did for this paper. Mm-hmm, sure. So I, I should I should mention, and you asked before how I became interested in Ludi Lytle, and I, I'd like to to tell you that story because it's related to the research. So I think I had been a professor for two years at Rutgers, and someone mentioned to me, "Oh, there's a group of." Black women who are all law professors who get together to workshop papers and to do. Um, uh, uh, mini conferences, these little mini, mini conferences. And the group is not large, but maybe you'd be interested in going. I was in my second year when this happened. And I said, oh, sure, I'd like to go. And the conference, when I received the information, was called the Ludi A. Lytle Black, law Fac- Black Women Law Faculty Workshop. 
So I saw this and I, I pay very little attention to the fact that this workshop was named for Ludi Lytle. It was only when I attended the first workshop, I think at my first workshop was in 2012, when I attended and during the workshop, there was a brief historical sort of background of why the workshop is named for this woman, Ludi Lytle, who at the time I'd never heard of. During that, I learned that this woman had gone to law school in the 1890s and no one knew her name. And then she became a law professor. And when she became a law professor, she was the first woman, not just the first woman of African descent. She was the first woman to teach at a law school, at an established law school in the country. I got super excited about that. And so it was, so that was 2012. And then, you know, life gets in the way and you don't think about it anymore. And then years go by. It was subsequently when the, the workshop was planned to have, was scheduled to occur in Nashville that I suggested to the organizers. I was not an organizer. I just sent an email. I suggested to the organizers, hey, I know, notice that since we're going to be at Vanderbilt in Nashville, and Ludi Lytle went to law school in Nashville, that maybe this is an opportunity to sort of talk more about her personal history and for us to learn more. And I really sort of took it upon myself at that point, because I, I don't, when I, you know, you have these ideas that you're like, hey, that's a good idea. We should do that. Nobody has time to follow through on anybody else's ideas. So I just thought, <laughs> well, maybe this is something that I could do. So I made this suggestion and then I went back and tried to see what I could find about Ludi's Law School, which no longer exists, what I could find about the law school, what may still be sort of extant in the historical archival record. And I was able to find fairly easily some uh, course catalogs from the law department, some books that sort of described instruction at the law school and um, articles about the, the law school building and even some images of the law school. And I got really excited about that. And so I took that to the organizing committee of this workshop and I said, hey, you know, following up on my idea, <laughs> here's some stuff I found. And would folks be interested in including, you know, just a brief mention in our conference planning of Ludi's life here in Nashville, since we'll be sort of where she went to law school. Can we talk about that? And the organizers of the conference were all really receptive and super supportive. And they said, of course we can. It makes perfect sense. And so that's where it started. I think this is 2014. I may get my dates wrong, but I think it's 2014. Mm -hmm. And so I, I put this together and it it started with me just sort of digging through whatever digital newspaper archives I could find that then morphed into me going to the Library of Congress. I subsequently had a fellowship at the Library of Congress and I spent a lot of time in the newspaper, the newspaper division at the Library of Congress, looking through newspapers, just trying to see everything I could find trying to see sort of what images I could find. You know, the Library of Congress is this, this wonderful repository, really is one of our, I think, national treasures. And and I worked on this paper under during the time that I had this LOC fellowship. And it was really an opportunity for me to search high and low for a figure who shows up quite a bit 
you know, for a burst of this moment in time, I could find her in a lot of places. And then over time, I can find her less, you know, reported on less and less frequently until there comes a point during my research when I could could not find her at all. I think as far as sort of doing legal history in a law school, the group of legal historians that are on the faculty at American law schools is growing and the group is vibrant and the group is, I think, supportive and collegial and super smart and, you know, thinks ahead. And it has really been for me a a blessing to, to be sort of in that, in that role. I think that we have folks in law schools who are doing historical work, who are doing, you know, present day, present problem work using historical methods. These folks are really trying to bring historical methods, bring historical research methods into our discussions and considerations of law, into our discussions and considerations of of legal meaning, of rulemaking, all of these things I think are super valuable. And I tend to be one of those folks who thinks that, you know, while I appreciate all of the folks who, who are, who claim to use history to inform current legal debates, I recognize that history is a method. And this is not sort of something where we just sort of pull, reach back and pull something out of the historical record and hope to make a claim about it. That sort of, you know, disaggregated, disembodied, um, quasi-historical research, I think, does us a disservice. It does the profession a disservice. And um, it may even do our courts a, ser- a disservice when courts are using that type of, of analytical uh, contribution to make decisions and to try to extract some meaning about what, for example, you know, the Second Amendment meant in the 1790s, right? <laughs> right? This is mm-hmm. sort of the, the Second Amendment question is the one that I think gets the most attention here because it's the one where we've seen uh, history be used, I think, most, uh, I would say, creatively. And um, <laughs> that's, that's a generous, that's a generous way of putting it. Down yeah. And, and as a creative, I know that you can appreciate when I use uh, the word creative. <laughs> so yes. Um, but I, you know, I think that there is, there's a lot of work still to be done. And mm. I didn't come into this job thinking that I would be a, a historian in this job, although I had gone to graduate school I really came into this work, into my position as a faculty member, wanting to study prisons and wanting to study sort of our increasing reliance on incarceration as as a, a method of social control and as a social program. And to me, because I'm a historian, I study prisons. You know, I'd I like to tell people I study prisons from the first to the last, right? So as in this country, we have a long history of prisons. And, and I have been for almost 20 years just really engrossing myself in that history, that sordid history of how incarceration comes to be our go-to um, tool, our go-to method of dealing with populations and issues that we somehow are ill-equipped to deal with. And so mm-hmm. I think, you know, 
I have been able to use some of my skill set as a historian in that work. But I also do some work that is not really about history or legal history at all. I'm working on a paper right now about criminal records. You know, this is about the present day state of criminal records. It's not about criminal records circa 1805 in, you know, in South Carolina, right? It's not, it's not about how South Carolinians kept track of who was, a, who was convicted of what. It's more about how New York and how the federal government keep track of who is convicted of work right now. And I think, mm. you know, it, I think that being a historian gives me maybe some different questions to ask. And that's the value when I do more presentist work. But um, I, I think that, that I, I like to think that I am always a historian, no matter where I am. I know my advisors would like, my, my dissertation advisor would like me to say that. I'm always a historian, no matter where I am. But my interests sometimes take me up into the present day. And, and I, I'm not always using history to make those arguments and, and pursue those, those, um, those claims. Mm-hmm. I think for a character like Ludi Lytle, though, you know, I brought everything to bear. And I think what started out as this sort of, you know, biography, right, it's necessarily historical, what started out as this biography project has turned into a, a really presentist project. And it's a presentist project about, about memory in our profession. And so I reached out to the uh, Women in Legal Education Committee at the Double ALS, which is the Association of American Law Schools. For folks who aren't familiar, it's sort of the large law school law professor professional organization. I reached out to them when I learned that they were embarking on a project to honor pioneering women law professors in an oral history um, on an oral history platform. I reached out to them and asked if they would be willing to include Ludi's story because as the profession begins to sort of think seriously about how can we honor many of these women who came into law teaching in the 1960s and the 1950s, women who may not always be with us, right? Women who will will not long be with us. How do we honor them and honor the, the sacrifices and the barriers that they overcame? I thought... How, can we include Ludi Lytle in this? This is a woman who, whose parents were slaves. How do we honor her and include her name among the pioneering women law professors? How can we ensure that for posterity, Ludi's name won't be lost in the way that Charlotte Ray's name was lost just 25 years after she'd graduated from law school, you know, accomplishing this feat that hadn't yet been accomplished? Mm. Mm. Well, so in closing, Tajania, you talk about taking an intersectional approach to studying Ludi Lytle's life and significance. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that means and sort of why you think that was an especially helpful way of approaching this project. And maybe also sort of talk briefly about sort of the state of affairs of women and African-American women in particular in the legal academy today and sort of how that perspective might inform the way we think about present day circumstances. Sure. I think this is, thank you for this question. The way that I think about intersectionality is, if I may say, I am not 
one of the folks who sort of tosses around intersectional and intersectionality as it suits me and as it suits the political moment. I think of intersectionality the way that Professor Crenshaw thought of intersectionality when she was writing about it in the employment discrimination context. And that is that there are folks in the world and that would include any of us listening and either even the two of us on the phone who, because of our identities, our embodied identities, are always going to be seen as multiple things. And if we are embodying multiple identities, then those multiple identities are also impacting how we are being treated in the workplace. And if the law, the sort of, you know, the law of employment discrimination in this country is seeking to 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 establish rules for for how we engage in the workplace and how we can ensure equitable access to to legitimate labor markets, then it needs to consider how people embody multiple identities at any given time and how those multiple identities cannot be disaggregated when folks are being um, acted upon in negative ways, right? So when someone is facing a negative job action. And so I think for me, I think that the lens is particularly helpful for studying a a historical actor like Ludi Lytle, because this is someone who is not only a woman who is coming of age in the 1890s before women have the right to vote, before women have any of the sort of things that we sometimes forget with respect to rights to hold property in their own names once they're married, rights to to um, open, to hold credit in their own names once they're married. So before women have access to all of these things, here we have a woman who is not, again, not just a woman, but also an obviously Black woman who is from a certain place and whose parents were previously enslaved. All of these things are operating on her identity at any one time, and all of those things are going to act to to either erect or dismantle barriers for her uh, success. I think when when you have a historical actor who themselves who, who themselves have talked about how being a woman and being black and being born in the place they were born impacted their thinking, then we should take them seriously at their word. And luckily, we have interviews from Ludi Lytle where she talks about being from where I'm from, being having the experiences that I had working for the black press, working for the state legislature. These things introduced me to the terror and atrocities under which my people, so this is, she uses the term my people. That's why I put that in the title. That's her term, right? The, the, the atrocities and terror under which my people are living throughout the United States. It was this experience that led me to think law is a way towards freedom and particularly constitutional law, because this is where our freedom is grounded. I mean, this is sort of a summary, a rough summary of her own words. She sees herself as operating in all of these spaces at once. And she also would later then sort of publish articles and describe how she thought Black women especially needed to think uh, expansively about what they could do not only for themselves, 
but also for their communities. And I think, again, this is sort of, she's taken an an intersectional approach. She's saying, we all want to do great things for ourselves, but look at what you can also do for some other folks. And you can, you can work and be excellent in all of these places. And let's think about how to do that notwithstanding the limitations that society will put on us. And I, I just, I think it's particularly rich and really bold and courageous to, to take that kind of a, a stand. I call it her lean in moment, right? So she's telling people, this is like, like you know, mm. 1912 or 1915 or something where Ludi Lytle is like, lean in ladies, we can do more. We can be whatever we want to be knowing full well that a lot of people cannot be what they want to be in 1915. But she's saying, you know, think differently about your circumstances and let's, let's, let's think, let's, let's think about the future. Let's build towards a future that maybe won't include us, but may be, will include other people. I think in terms of uh, black women professors in, in the legal academy today, the numbers are really impressive. So you have at, I think, uh, last count, you have, I want to say close to, uh, it's several hundred. Let me see. I'm just checking the record. In 2013, the last time that this was counted, <laughs> it was 1,069 law faculty self-identified as African-American. So you sort of think over a thousand women who are self-identifying as Black in the legal academy in this country. It would include, I think, because I, I know how the categories tend to be a little vague, this would include women who are women from West Africa, from Africa, wherever in Africa they may be from, women from uh, the Caribbean islands, and also women from South America, sort of women from the African diaspora. So you have over a thousand. So that seems like a lot, except when you think about that, that even that over a thousand is going to be less than 5% of the total. So while while uh, men who self-identify as white comprise, I think, for, uh, more than 45 percent of the law professoriate, the legal professoriate in this country, women who ide- self-identify as black comprise less than 5 percent. And so relatively, the numbers still are fairly low. Now, if the numbers are low because the work isn't super interesting to people and so they aren't attracted to the field or if the work or if the, the low numbers are the product of folks again sort of grappling with systemic barriers I'll leave for another interview but what I know for sure and what I want to mention <laughs> here is there's there was a there's been some talk over the past week or so about Mitch Daniels who's currently the president of Purdue University um, s- saying publicly that the school was going to do its best to to recruit one of the rarest creatures out there. This is a quote, one of the rarest creatures out there, a leading black scholar. So here you have the president of a university who is, who is also, um, is also a, a leading political figure, by the way, who somehow believes that leading black scholars are not just rare, but rare creatures. And so, you know, I think that there's still, <laughs> It goes without saying, a lot of work to be done. There are there are people who are doing exceptional work. They are being recognized. They are sort of getting their due. I'm super excited for them. I love it. I love to see them go. I love to see them excel. And I always think we can do more. And I hope that 
by telling the stories of some of the women who have gone before us and the barriers that they faced and sort of how they pressed ahead. I hope that we have more opportunities to encourage current college students, maybe even current law students to think differently about what's possible for them. And, you know, there are, there are women in law school right now who would be excellent professors, but who don't think that it's an option for them because of, I don't know, the grade that they got in torts or because of some experience that they had with legal writing or something that a crim law professor said that they've never gotten over. I've basically just told you my whole story (laughs) because of all of those things. (laughs) They think that the legal academy is not for them. And I hope that, you know, together, collectively, we can do more to convince those women there is a space here for you. And if it isn't here yet, we can build it. So come to this table. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope this interview is part of, you know, providing that kind of encouragement. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, Tajania, and I hope I can have you on the show again soon to talk about your work on prisons. Thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciate it. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. Yeah, you too. Mm-hmm.